morning. So we are doing a series that is uh, triggered off the Apostles' Creed. Started it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, John Denning and Stephen Lamison have given us an excellent start to that series. Unfortunately, because of uh, scheduling conflicts, we had to flip the second and third parts of the creed. And so what Steve preached on last week actually follows what I'll preach on today, which is the incarnation. Joey is going to take up the resurrection next week. And then uh, Kevin will speak about the Holy Spirit. Larry Kramer is going to talk about the church. Jorge will be coming back and joining us for a week here. And he will speak on uh, forgiveness. And then Rocco will complete our series uh, by speaking about eternal life. The Apostles' Creed is a a wonderfully short statement of faith. And there have been many statements of faith down through the ages. Um, this may be the earliest one. John suggested when he was preaching that it's possible that it goes back into the very first century AD. Um, many churches have statements of faith. And uh, there are other statements of faith that are also called creeds. But uh, this one is nice because it's short and it has all the important doctrines in it. So we thought it would be a great idea to do a summer series on the fundamental important doctrines in the Christian faith. These are the things that there is no compromise about. These are the things that are fundamental to our faith, that define us as Christians. And perhaps nothing defines us more than the one that we'll discuss today, namely the Incarnation. Let me read the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And remember, as I'm reading this, the idea of this, of a creed, is that it's something that anybody can memorize. It's not hard. It's about the same length as, as Psalm 23, let's say. So it's not hard. And back in the time when these creeds were written down, uh, believers did not have written scriptures. They didn't have a Bible that they brought to church with them. They didn't have um, a row of Bibles on their bookshelf at home, like many of us do. And so how were they to remember the things that they were supposed to believe? Well, very simply, just memorize something like this statement of faith. So let me read it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It's pretty concise, isn't it? It's got all the important elements in there, all the things that we believe. The one that we'll take up today is the second section, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this is really about the incarnation. Incarnation is a word that we kind of throw around, um, but what does it really mean? If you look up the, the definition in the dictionary, depending on your dictionary, the one I looked up said, a person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. Hmm. Embodies. Well, I'm not sure that I think that really captures the idea of the incarnation and what we mean by it, as we shall see. It's more, the incarnation of Christ is more than an embodiment. It's not God dressing up as a human for a certain amount of time. That's what people would think of as incarnation. Uh, it just embodied. It's more than that. And I was trying to think of an example of this. When Fiona and I were uh, in Japan, we only were there once, but one of the things that we learned when we were there it's, is that as a foreigner, it's impossible to become Japanese. They just won't accept you. You can go there and you can uh, eat like they do, and you can dress like they do, and you can live like they do, and you can learn the language fluently like they do. And they will always be polite. They will always be welcoming. But they will never accept you as Japanese. You cannot become Japanese unless you are already Japanese. But that is exactly what we mean by the incarnation of Christ. That Christ did not, Jesus, the Son of God, did not just come to the earth and dress like a human being, as it were, and do all the things that human beings do. It was far more profound than that. The Lord Jesus Christ became human. He didn't appear to be human. He wasn't the embodiment of a human, but he was human. We need to uh, reflect on that, and that's what we'll do this morning. Here's another way we might say our little section today. There is a person, a human being, and we call him Jesus Christ. He is the promised one. We affirm that this person is God, Son, and Lord, Son of God. We affirm that this person is man, conceived and born, Son of man, Son of God, Son of man. In fact, at the, near the end of uh, John's gospel, he writes this, but these things 
are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, if we take that apart, we see that what John is saying there is that fundamental to the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a dividing point. If you do not believe this, that Jesus is the Son of God, then I can categorically say that you are not a Christian. You may enjoy uh, all the trappings of Christianity, but if you don't believe this, then you don't have life in his name. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So let's take apart our section in uh, four pieces. We'll do Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and then who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ. Credo. John told us two weeks ago, credo, it starts written in the Latin version of it, starts credo. I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus, there was a man. There was a man who lived on the earth 2,000 years ago, and his name was Jesus. Uh, that's the same name as Joshua. We have a Joshua right in this, uh, in this church here. He's not here today, but we have a Joshua here. Josh, same name, Jesus. Joshua was the Hebrew form of the Greek uh, name uh, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, there are many people today whose name is Jesus. That was his name. He was named that. That's what his brothers called him and his parents. It just tells us about his manhood. But then he had another name, and that was Christ. Now, Christ wasn't his surname. He didn't come from the family of Christ. His parents weren't Mr. and Mrs. Christ, which we might think, because everybody today has a first name and a surname. No, Christ was a title. It's like a doctor today. So instead of saying, we normally put doctor before the name. So sometimes people call my friend Paul Hagen, Dr. Paul. So we might say Dr. Paul. Uh, we could have, if Jesus were here, we might call him Messiah Jesus because it was his title. Messiah is a title. It's an indication not of what his name is, but of who he is, what he is. What does Messiah mean? Well, Messiah means the promised one. Messiah is uh, a word <coughs> that comes, comes many times in the Bible. He was the promised one of the Old Testament. And uh, I suppose if we were to um, read the Old Testament verses that promise the Messiah, we would be here. Uh, for maybe 48 hours or something like that. There are many, many references to the promised one 
in the Old Testament. I think of Psalm 24, which I believe someone read in our earlier meeting this morning. Who is this King of Glory? That speaks about the Promised One, the Messiah. Um, Isaiah 53 gives us another whole perspective on the Promised One. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. A whole different picture of the Promised One, and yet the same one. The people who lived at the time that Jesus did in the land of Israel all expected to see the Messiah. Well, at least they expected the Messiah to come and they hoped he would come in their time, but they expected him. It was, it was part of the culture, of the Jewish culture, that there was a, a promised Messiah that everyone was expecting someday that Messiah would come. And it was, it was burned into them, as it were, as you might say uh, with, with computers nowadays, it was burned into them that the Messiah was coming someday. And so when Jesus, when I say I believe in Jesus Christ, what I'm saying is that that man, that particular man whose name was Joshua, Jesus, that particular man was the Messiah. He was the one who had been promised. It's a startling claim, isn't it? That this particular one is the Messiah of all the people that had lived in the hundreds, thousands of years that these prophecies has been made before that. Of all of those people, this was the one that had been promised. This humble, quiet man who grew up in very humble circumstances was the Messiah. And so I believe in Jesus, the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, promised, the promised Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. That is a phrase that's just full of meaning, his only son. Now we can take that directly, if we like, from the Bible. That is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Those two words, only begotten, actually translate just one Greek word. And that's why uh, many translations nowadays will just say only son. But they have that sense of only unique son. And they don't, the, the word in Greek doesn't refer so much to the idea of, of birth as it does to the idea of relationship. He is the unique person who is related to God related to the father, but to God, as a father, as we might think of a father related to a son. But that's just a way for us to think about it. It's not that he's actually 
a born son of God. In fact, there is these concepts about Christ and about his deity and his humanity, they're so difficult to get our heads around that they've been the source of many heresies almost since the very beginning of Christianity. One of the great heresies was the heresy of Arianism. And the idea of Arianism was the belief that because he was the only begotten son, that he had been created. That there was some time in the past when he didn't exist, and then he became existing. He became the son. And this is a heresy. In fact, it was corrected um, specifically in a later creed, the Nicene Creed from the year 325, in which the writers of that creed expanded a little bit. And they said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, now listen to this, eternally begotten of the Father. Eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And so the idea of son and father, you know, the, the, um, the Apostles' Creed brings out the Trinity. And we do believe that God expresses himself as a Trinity. He's one God, but we see him in three persons. And this comes out very clearly in the Creed. And I like the fact that it doesn't use the word Trinity because the Bible never uses the word Trinity. And so it's very biblical. But it talks at the beginning about the Father and then about the Son and I believe in the Holy Spirit. So it's got all three of these in here. Now the Trinity is very hard to understand. It's a hard concept to get our minds around. How three can be one at the same time. There are some people who would say that uh, we are, um, we worship three gods. Not one god, but three gods. But it's not true, we worship one god. So how we understand that? Well, God has given us some clues as to how we are to understand the persons of the Trinity. And one of these is that Jesus is called the Son of God. So it tells us that somehow the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is like the relationship between an earthly father and an earthly son. Now we can't take that too far because we'll, we'll step into heresy if we do that. Because there are things about the earthly father and son that aren't reflected in, in the heavenly father and the heavenly son. In particular, the heavenly father and the heavenly son are one. They're both God. Whereas the son and the father on earth aren't one. They're two uh, very distinct people. And there are other things too that, that um, we can't 
um, we can't deduce from that comparison between father and son. Nevertheless, this is given to us. I believe Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, his only son. Now, a son has two wonderful aspects to it. Two aspects to the son are that he is the son of God and the son of man. And notice that the creed says his only son. It doesn't mention son of God and son of man. But he is both of these things. He's son of God and he's son of man. So we've seen how son of God is a relationship between the father and the son. And when we try to probe the depths of the Trinity and understand the relationship between the father and the son, it helps sometimes to think of a father and a son. It helps when we read some of the things that Christ says, if it be possible, take this cup from me. That's a hard thing to understand when you think that Jesus Christ is God himself. How can God be saying to God, if it be possible, take this cup from me? It helps somewhat to think of the relationship between the father and the son. So he was the son of God. But he was also the son of man. In fact, Jesus calls himself the son of man over 80 times in the Gospels. That's how he refers to himself. And that phrase, the son of man, is beautiful because it would remind the people, whenever he said it, of a very well-known passage in, um, in Daniel chapter 7. I'll just read it to you. It's a couple of verses. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One of the great references to the Messiah, the promised one. And in that passage, he is called the Son of Man. And even the common man among the Jewish people going to the synagogue uh, week after week would have heard that scripture mentioned. And when the Lord Jesus walked on the earth, he called himself the Son of Man, and it would bring to mind this idea that he was the Messiah. He was making a claim to be the Messiah. But the other lovely thing about that phrase, the Son of Man, is that it also speaks about his humanity. A Son of Man is yet another human, right? So by calling himself the Son of Man... In the context there, in the, in the Jewish nation, he was at the same time claiming to be human and claiming to be God. All of that is wrapped up in that phrase, his only son. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, the son of God and the son of man. And then the third phrase in there is our Lord. 
Lord is a great phrase, and I think we overuse it, especially in our prayers. Have you ever heard someone praying? Or perhaps you pray yourself like this. Uh, Lord, thank you, Lord, for the beautiful weather today, Lord. Thank you for the heat, Lord. I love heat, Lord. Lord, it's just so warm on my body, Lord. Have you heard that kind of prayer before? Some people might use the word Father uh, and overuse it that way. So we kind of drain it. It's almost like a filler word, and we drain it from its beautiful meaning. But Lord, what does Lord mean? Well, Lord means master. It says something about the relationship between me and the person I believe in. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. What it means is that I'm acknowledging the fact that he's my Lord. I'm not just saying something uh, objective about a person that lived 2,000 years ago. I'm saying something subjective about my relationship to this person. And by the way, that also implies that I believe that he's still alive. He can't be my Lord. I can't call him my Lord if after he died on the cross, he didn't rise again from the dead. So when I say I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I'm speaking about my relationship to him. I'm saying that he has authority in my life. He has authority over me. He provides for me. He's my Lord and he provides for me. I'm saying that I'm obedient to him. When he says to do something, I do it. So that Lord is, that word Lord is just full of meaning. Our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And now we come to the really beautiful part of our section today. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, if you've uh, been here at the chapel for some time, you've undoubtedly heard me say that my favorite verse in the whole Bible is Matthew 1.18. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's it. Right there. That's the place in the Bible where the incarnation is revealed. Right there. You see, the idea of the incarnation was actually a mystery. There was a great Messiah promised, but it was never revealed except sort of in hints that the one who would come would be both God and man. But here in this verse, Matthew, who's a Jew of Jews, he really gets it. He really understands the fact that she was found to be with child before the Holy Spirit. 
the Virgin Mary before they came together, before they'd had any kind of physical, sexual union. She was a virgin. The Holy Spirit came upon her in some way that we don't understand. And in the normal course of events, I assume, you know, we've all learned about the the little egg that gets formed and it goes down. Well, I'm going to say something medically wrong, so I better not I better not say it, but it goes down some tube or something. But anyway, it eventually, uh, if there's a little sperm there to, to um, join up with it, then it becomes a new human, right? One cell, a human. Now, there was no sperm, but the Holy Spirit descended on Mary. Now, get this. Just think about this. There's that little egg, and the Holy Spirit does some miracle, and that egg becomes a fertilized egg, and that, that fertilized egg, that single cell, is God Almighty. Think about that. That's the inc- Nothing speaks about the incarnation more than that. That was God right there in Mary's womb. Wow. Isn't that great? It's profound. Jesus is God Almighty. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was the Word being Christ, of course, the Logos. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was God Almighty. He was the author of life. Someone read that verse too earlier this morning. In, uh, I think it was Stephen. um, In in Acts 3.15, Peter, when he was preaching, called him the author of life. He was the creator. In Colossians, Paul talks about him in Colossians 1.16 and tells us that through him and for him and by him, by him, All things were created. He was the creator. Now I want you to think about that. This will make our heads hurt. But the creator becomes a single cell in Mary's womb. The maker becomes made. You can't understand that, can you, Rocco? You just can't understand it. How can the maker, the one who makes everything, become made? It's the most impossible miracle that God ever performed. Becoming a man. I always smile when the um, Christmas season comes upon us and you start to hear these discussions about, oh, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Um, you know, and it's scientific, and we know that we know that a virgin can't uh, can't get pregnant. But that is a tiny, tiny miracle compared to Jesus becoming man. You see, we there's two miracles going on there. One of them is that a virgin became pregnant. Yes, that's 
surprising. But it's nothing compared with the person she became pregnant with, who was God Almighty. That's the essence of the incarnation right there. And if you can believe in this impossibility, and you must, if you're to have this abundant life, if you're to be saved, you must believe in it. But if you can believe in it, then all the problem with other miracles just falls away. All the other miracles are small miracles compared to this one. I can easily believe that God, who is outside of all that he created, can reach in and, and tweak things and change things at his will. But that's nothing compared to him getting inside the creation, being created as a human being. It just seems impossible. God is infinite. Jesus is finite. God is everywhere. Jesus was bound in time and space. God knows everything. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He learned things. He knew everything, but he learned things. God is almighty. But Jesus got tired. You see, no matter where you turn when you start thinking about Christ, you get hit again with the incarnation. How can this be? It's such a startling fact. It's such an impossibility. And that's why, if you're willing to say the Apostles' Creed, you're saying something that is extremely profound. I believe. C.S. Lewis said, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story had been about. That's it, Matthew 1.18. That is the center of history right there. The whole story, the whole story of creation and mankind populating the earth and kings and, and the nation of Israel and, and uh, wars and, and everything that happened before Christ and everything that's happened since, the whole thing centers on this one event right here when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she became pregnant with the God of the universe. Wow, it's just amazing. <coughs> Nothing is more amazing, more preposterous, more awesome, more difficult to believe than this. But I believe that it's true. People claim to have problems with Christianity, they talk about the problem of evil, the problem of the heathen, the existence of miracles, the resurrection. But all of these problems are small compared to the problem of the incarnation. If you, if you can come to grips with the incarnation, then the other problems all just melt away. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Why did he do this? Well, we'll be taking that up later in the summer. But, uh, but the answer is right there. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. And I say that this demands a response. You can't ignore it. You can't say, oh, that's interesting. Because if it's true, it changes everything. It gives us a completely different perspective on the world than if it's false. We have to respond to it. Every person has to respond to this. The incarnation. There is no middle ground. And so what do you think about the incarnation? Have I said enough about it that you're just bamboozled and you think, oh, this can't be true? Or do you believe with me that even though it seems impossible, it's the most glorious thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe? Jesus Christ being born into the world I'll finish with two quotes, one from Augustine. I love the way it starts. Man's maker was made man. Don't you love that? Man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread with a capital B, might hunger. The fountain, thirst. The light, sleep. The way, be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false witnesses. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And then J.I. Packer, one of my favorite quotes about the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation is unfathomable. We cannot explain it. We can only formulate it. Perhaps it has never been formulated better than in the words of the Athanasian Creed, and yet another creed, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, perfect God and perfect man, who although to be, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. Our minds cannot get beyond this. What we see in the manger is, in Charles Wesley's words, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Incomprehensibly. We shall be wise to remember this. 
to shun speculation and contentedly to adore. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we love you, and yet we're perplexed by how it could ever be possible for you, the supreme Son of God, the creator of all that we see around us, to become a created one, to take manhood into yourself, to become man. But we affirm again that we believe in you. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. You are the one that the whole story has been about. And we humbly bow before you and accept that fact and ask you in our lives to be our Lord. Amen.